I'm Dan Joseph. You're listening to the Dan Joseph's America podcast. Hi there. Today is December 27th. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas holiday. The year is almost over and it's going to be 2024, which is an election year. I know. Sometimes they can be fun and exciting. I'm not sure if this one will be. We have two unpopular candidates who are likely to be nominated. You have a huge political divide in this country, and it's not just between Republicans and Democrats. It's between Republicans and other Republicans and Democrats and other Democrats. And I think a a lot of that divide is also about the fact that you have an economy that doesn't really feel like it's working for everyone. It's a tough economy right now for a lot of people. If you look at the polls, only 34% of Americans say they are better off financially now than they were four years ago. That's from an I and I TIPP poll. About 60% say they are worse off. Only 23% say they approve of the way that Joe Biden is handling the economy. I mean, are you better off than you were four years ago? That's the famous question asked by Ronald Reagan in 1980 when he was debating then-President Jimmy Carter during very similar tough economic times. It was it was way worse then. But, you know, inflation, that kind of thing. And, and, and are you? Are you? Are you better off than you were four years ago? I think most people would say no to that. I think most of us are feeling it in two areas specifically. Cost of living, particularly in terms of rent and mortgages. I know I'm feeling it. I mean, my rent has gone up a lot over the last few years, and it's it's hard. It's difficult. Those things, rent and mortgages, are becoming unsustainable for a lot of people. The monthly rent costs more than it did four years ago, and that alone is hurting people. Food prices are still high. Wages have not yet caught up to inflation. Energy prices are up and down, but mostly up. And and people will be thinking about that when they vote. They're going to be thinking about the economy when they vote in the presidential election next year. The economy is always top of mind. Now, let's be honest about this. Is this all Joe Biden's fault? No. I would say most of it isn't actually. And neither Trump or Biden is to blame for the economic problems we have. Biden's problem is that he's the incumbent and that he's trying to sell the fact or the idea that the economy is great. It's really great. That's what they keep on saying when they get up to that podium in the White House press briefing room. Oh, man, everything is terrific. This is the strongest economy. Because there are lots of indicators like unemployment and GDP that are positive. That's true. But it doesn't matter if people aren't feeling it. If you have a job and are still having trouble paying bills, you don't care about the unemployment rate. You don't care about GDP because those things don't have a direct impact on your life. Or at least you don't feel like they do. Biden just seems out of touch here. You know, Bill Clinton was really, really good at empathy. He he felt your pain. There was a famous quote from, from Bill Clinton during the recession of 1992. Joe Biden is trying to put lipstick on a pig here. But again, it's not his fault. Yes, he and Trump both spent too much during COVID. That's true. They both mailed out checks. They both put more money into the economy and that exacerbated inflation, no doubt. But 
the inflation was not primarily caused by those checks. It was really caused by the lockdowns and the way we handled COVID and supply chains and consumer shortages by too much money chasing too many goods and services during the pandemic. It totally screwed up the economy everywhere, not just in the U.S., all over the world. So we shouldn't pretend that this is one person's fault. The, the, the president, of, it's funny how we do it. The president of the United States will always get the blame for a sour economy. But the reality is there's very little a president can do to mess up the economy or to get it moving again once it's messed up. The one real exception you can point to when, uh, when in terms of a president having a big effect on the economy was the Reagan tax cuts. In 1981 and 82, which led to a huge boom. And that, of course, was paired with policies that were uh, intended to get inflation under control. It did work. Paul Volcker and the Fed did that. So that, that was really the one time. But otherwise, the economy is just too big. And it's too independent for one guy in the White House to be able to control it. But what the problems we are facing have led to is more people asking questions about capitalism in general over the last few years. And and yes, this happens every time there's a recession or an economic downturn, and it usually comes from the progressive side because progressives are not as enamored with capitalism and the prosperity it is capable of bringing as conservatives are. And they'll point to things like wages and lack of uh, a safety net, and they'll argue that capitalism only benefits the wealthy and that a better system would be to socialize a variety of industries, implement price controls, limit how much people can make, more regulations, more efforts to rein in so-called income inequality. And you can try to convince the progressives that these kind of policies have been proven not to work over and over again, but they're driven more by a hatred for capitalism and the wealthy than a conviction that there's a better way. Because American capitalism has huge benefits. We've, we've created a very high standard of living in this country. And you'll hear progressives challenge that. And they'll say, well, they have higher standards of living in places like Denmark and the Scandinavian countries. But that depends on how you measure it. For example, did, did you know that the United States has the biggest average apartment size and house size in the world, area-wise. That's part of the standard of living. You go to Western Europe, and live in these, these tiny little apartments with tiny little bathrooms and tiny little showers, and we live in these relatively big living spaces. Our standard of living overall is second to none when measured honestly. And some measurements will include things like the poverty rate. Okay. Well, those in poverty in the United States have a higher standard of living than those in poverty almost anywhere else, right? I mean, if you're poor in the United States, you have a lot. Yeah, and nobody, nobody wants to be poor and nobody's saying that, oh, yeah, poverty is great. But you, you do have, for the most part, access to food. You do have refrigerators. You do have computers. You do have uh, smartphones, flat screen TVs, a lot of the luxuries that we take for granted. You have, even if you're living in poverty in the United States, they'll say, well, the U.S. has a lower life expectancy than other nations. That's true. But it's not because of our healthcare system, as some would argue. It's because of the way we live. 
It's because of the way we eat and drink and smoke and exercise. And yes, we have problems. When it comes to healthcare, there are issues with accessibility, which should be addressed. But the system itself is second to none, which we take for granted. Best doctors, best technology, which we invent, by the way, here in the United States. They'll say, well, you have a poor education system compared to the rest of the world. Well, some of the schools are terrible, sure. But some of the schools are great. And school quality has more to do with parents and students than the amount of money each school is getting, than than the teachers and economic factors. Uh, Look at our university and college system. It's enormous. Expensive, yes. But there is no other nation that has the quality of higher education than the United States. And then finally, they'll say that there's, well, there's a lot of income inequality in America. So what? And I've always wondered, and I've never had somebody explain this to me in detail, the gap between the rich and the poor. Oh, it's so big. They'll say, well, okay, that's not a good measuring stick because the amount of money that the super wealthy have has no negative impact on those in the middle. Or those at the bottom of the economic ladder. It's just a talking point. It's just class warfare. Choice. We have a lot of choices in the United States that they don't have in other countries. Go to American an American supermarket sometime. The amount of choice is astounding. You have, what, like 15 different kinds of yogurt. You got five kinds of pickles. The choices we have are endless. And that's not the way it works in Western Europe. So, so when you see and hear progressives try to knock the capitalist system, you need to understand that their perspective is based on what they are choosing to base their measurements on. By almost every meaningful standard, the U.S. is at the top of the economic well-being scale. We do have an underclass, no doubt. We have less of a social safety net than other nations, true. You can argue that we should extend that, expand that, but we we also have an economy where it's easier to innovate, it's easier to start a business, we have full employment right now, uh, it's easier to get rich if that's your goal. And you hear the left talk a lot, what's the new term? It's um, late stage capitalism. You hear this a lot recently. And late stage capitalism is the idea that capitalism is on its last legs. And that it's a rotten system and it can't sustain itself. And progressives have been saying this since the the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. But their argument is based on the idea that economic freedom is inherently inequitable and therefore bad. It points to the wealthy and says that no one should have that much money. It should be redistributed and it completely ignores that standard of living that we have compared to the rest of the world. Because and, and also there's another there's another aspect of this. When you look at Western European countries, you're looking at a largely homogenized population. You're looking at places with no diversity, not a lot of different culture, not a lot of immigrants coming there for economic freedom and prosperity and jobs. It, it's different in a lot of respect. So the comparison is really unfair. But we do know that if we were to transition to an economic system more like the social democracies in Western Europe, Norway, Denmark, Finland, there, there would be trade-offs. There would have to be sacrifices that most Americans would not want to make. But 
back to the politics of the situation for a second. A lot of the next presidential election will be focused on the economy. And on the one hand, it's my belief that Republicans are better suited to spur economic growth, not because of any policies they can put in. Yeah, yeah, tax cuts are great. I believe in tax cuts for everybody. But just because the Republicans don't want to interfere and overregulate the system like the Democrats do. The economy does better without the interference or threat of interference by government. Yes. Yeah, and, and yes, we do need a safety net. I believe that. I'm not a libertarian on the safety net situation, but there's not a whole lot the government can do through legislation to do things like increase wages or facilitate growth. But there's a lot the government can do to hinder those things. So if you're on the progressive side and you're listening to this, I want you to ask yourself something. If if you have a solid reason for disliking capitalism in the American economic system, what is it? Because the chances are you would not be satisfied living in another country with a different system. There would be a lot of economic culture shock there. What you consider your standard of living would drop in ways that you aren't even considering. And I'm not saying there there aren't ways that we can improve our economic life in the United States. I, I mean, we look, we absolutely need to address the cost of housing and renting. I don't know how you do that. I don't know the exact reasons that housing costs are so high right now. You have inflation. Yes, that probably has a lot to do with it. But inflation, the only way you can address it is to let it fix itself and for the Fed to mess with uh, interest rates. And that works. And it seems to be working. It's, it's, you have to wait. You have to wait it out. And, you know, the other thing is that capitalism has booms and busts. We have recessions. We have tough times. The question is this, are the benefits of the booms, like the tech boom, for instance, worth the downturns? That's the question you have to ask with our system. And it's very easy when things aren't great to say, no, this is not worth it. But when you look at the big picture, I think the choice between capitalism and socialism, or call it what you want, social democracies, I think it's a pretty easy one, and I think capitalism tends to win out. I'm Dan Joseph. This is the Dan Joseph's America podcast. Please check out my videos at DanJoseph78 on YouTube. Some new ones up there, and I will see you on Friday. <laughs>